0: Welcome to Cloud and Culture. Before we get back into new episodes, we wanted to publish a best of episode so new listeners can get a sense of what we've been discussing since launching this podcast just over a year ago. As a reminder, the overall goal of the podcast is to share some of the wisdom that VMware Tanzu Labs practitioners have acquired through the years. And we do that by speaking with experts themselves, as well as occasionally with clients. So the topics are varied ranging from designing your first product as a startup to scaling Kubernetes inside large organizations. We've grabbed a highlight from each episode, so stick around and listen. Beginning with our first episode featuring entrepreneur Jackie Mable, explaining how Pivotal Labs, as it was then called, helped her get her first startup, Revelar, off the ground several years ago.
1: Our engagement with Pivotal made it possible for us to move fast, save money in the long run because we weren't having to, you know, rebuild bad code. We weren't having to, um, if if we lost somebody or somebody moved away, we didn't lose that knowledge. Um, and and when I looked at some of my friends who decided to go a different path or. First, only hire in-house before sort of giving themselves the time to hire the right people. especially in hardware, they didn't deliver products for like two, three years after they were supposed to. Um, And so overwhelmingly, the feedback I got externally was it was almost like a shock of like, how did you all move so fast and build such a strong product? Um, And I was always very open that we were engaged with Pivotal and that that they were helping make that software come to life.
0: And here's Lori Gomer, then BP of business operations, and strategy at a healthcare startup called Alucio, discussing how labs help the company to focus on building the right things at the right time.
2: You know, Pivotal really helped us focus on, I think, our North Star and, you know, trying not to get too sidetracked because there's always a million things that you want to do and lots of aspirations. And, you have to you have to really be able to narrow those down so that you can figure out what can make impact quickly and what can drive value for your end users. And I think they were really instrumental in helping us figure out what made sense to tackle first and what was what was for later, but we're, you know, we're not we're not losing the idea, but we will hold that for later because it probably makes more sense to do perhaps a little bit more research or just from a time perspective perhaps on how long it would take to build. Um, that concept.
0: Here is Josh Rosso of VMware sharing some advice he gives clients on the challenges of and best practices for managing application platforms based on Kubernetes or otherwise.
3: The first thing that I tell them is first let's worry about needing to get to scale (laughs) because so many times we don't even get to that point and we've covered a lot of that already, right? It's like, do I actually benefit from running kubernetes is it beneficial to me another really common thing is if especially if you're building out uh, you know an application platform on top of cube where like you're going to be having monitoring maybe a service mesh maybe x y and z thing to, to benefit the apps make sure you're engaged with your development teams during that process it might seem obvious but it's super sad how many times i go to large organizations that have a build it and they will come mentality and then they wonder why platform adoption kind of lags. It's because you built something in a silo and, and you misaligned some of your decisions with what developers actually need and want. So let's assume you did those two things right and you built a great platform and you got great adoption. So then that gets to, I think, what maybe you were more so getting at. What are what are some of the kind of key gotchas? Um, I'll, I'll throw a couple off the top of my head that, that I commonly see. Um, one of them, as as you start kind of getting adoption, is uh, is really around. Hmm, well, well, I'll use this one as an example. It's kind of random, but um, choosing your open source tooling wisely, um, and and this this one is is interesting because we've had this paradigm shift from you know you have a vendor or an enterprise supply you with something to you know, a lot more of a like open source, I can pull it off GitHub type model. Now, open source has always been a thing, don't get me wrong, but it's becoming even more prevalent. And if you look at something like the cloud native landscape, um, there's tons of logos for all types of projects and products out there, right? So the one thing that I'm oftentimes telling folks as they as they scale and, and choose these different tools is, you know, really think wisely and honestly about the um, onus it puts on you to run some of these these projects. Um, you know, the the common thing, I don't know who came up with it, that, that people say like, free as in puppy, not free as in beer for open source, right? It's very true, open source is free as in puppy. Sure, it's free for you to download and deploy your cluster, but when, you know, your, uh, when your container networking solution, let's say you're using um, Cilium as an example, if, if it breaks down on you, who's on the hook for solving that problem? Who's on the f- hook if a, a critical bug comes up and, and sends your production system spiraling? Um, you know, In cases like Cilium or Calico or Andrea, in the case of VMware, a lot of these, these open source projects have enterprise support. So not that you need enterprise support, but the question really is, do you have the operational maturity that when you scale out and something goes wrong you understand how to work the project, how to work the code, how to fix bugs, how to solve problems. Those are really kind of honest and big things to solve for. Um, and then I guess the, the last thing I would say, um, just to give one more random example is, you know, really commonly when you start scaling out, it's just really scaling out how you manage and how you do SRE like things to the, the many, many different entities you have to worry about. So like in that multi-cluster model, Um, you know, let's say you end up with hundreds and hundreds of clusters, how are you going to have an SRE practice around all of these different units that you have to worry about? Um, How are you going to ensure reliability, um, not just for one thing, which might be where you started, but now a hundred things? And and how are you going to kind of federate and think about kind of the management plane on, on top of all of that stuff? Up
0: next, Hetty Stern of VMware Tanzu Labs on why different orgs and applications require different approaches to iteration, and why one of the best things about Agile is being able to change your mind.
4: I was just on a walk right before this with a friend of mine, Adam, who is a product manager at Spotify, an X Labs pivot. Totally awesome. And we were talking about the differences in our experience around how to iterate. What does iteration mean at a company like Spotify versus uh, Dick Sporting Goods, right? What does iteration mean at a company like Spotify or Facebook versus a government project that really only has 100 users that will ever touch it anyway, or an internal financial services tool that is really important to 20 people and runs a huge book of business, but only 20 people are going to use it. And how do you experiment and how do you iterate and how do you user test versus, when you can run an experiment with 10 million people versus running an experiment with one or two? And I think the The challenge for a lot of our clients is hearing the excitement of big data and the ability to test and iterate, but struggling to figure out how to apply it to smaller user bases. And I think in a lot of ways that comparison isn't really fair. It ultimately is setting up the average software development team to feel frustrated to try to look for data where there isn't enough to make decisions right? And I think one of the things that we look for in our, all of our teams in all of our hiring processes is someone that is able to make a decision with limited information, just make a decision and kind of move forward. Because the, the magic of agile is not in making the right decision. It is in changing the decision you've made. But we have to do more around making that initial decision. We have to do more around describing what good looks like, describing what great looks like, describing what done looks like, even if it's wrong and changing our work along the way rather than getting stuck trying to get it right or not planning cuz we don't know oh and only if we had known oh if only we defer the decision then then it'll be better then we'll like we'll get a better outcome i think we've gone a little too far and our clients need us to to help them balance planning and Uh, collection of data and thinking about return on investment, but also our clients need help thinking about when is it time to stop something? When is it time to rethink? Uh, Maybe you're not going to get enough information around if this is still worth the investment.
0: Back in October, VMware Tanzu Labs Joe Moore shared his thoughts on remote pair programming practices that will outlast the COVID nineteen pandemic.
5: Uh, I think it's no secret that you know VMware Pivotal Labs and and, and the and Pivotal the history of, the, of the, that company that kind of VMware acquired that we were very much about pair programming, you know, two programmers working together on the same problem to, to implement the best solution together, literally on the same computer. And then remote pair programming, you know, is doing that same thing, but across some kind of screen sharing and, and audio video technology. And that worked well for, for years and, and it's, keep gotten, it's gotten better and better over time. But something that's happened recently, and I think that COVID and we've talked about, you know, the the flexibility people not just want, but need people with kids at home people with elderly parents just the 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 increased demands that the pandemic has put on people being at home it has meant that you know people might have a, there might be people schedules might be all over the place and something that has been observed recently is that the the idea of mob programming or some people call it like party programming because mob can have sort of a negative connotation of you know you might have three or four people collaborating together on a problem. Maybe there's a really hairy problem and and people are stuck or they can't decide on a solution. So they all join a programming session, four or five or more people all at the same time. And they're all working on the solution together. Some kind of in the backseat suggesting things, other people literally sharing a virtual keyboard, so to speak, writing code at the same time. And the seamless nature of which you can kind of jump between Pairs and this my my last project. Uh, I was in this role a lot, where I would just sort of rotate throughout the day, dropping in to other groups, helping unblock them if they were stuck, or just kind of seeing what they were doing. And uh, and I could kind of jump in and out of those scenarios a lot easier than I could if I was pulling up a physical chair and you know, try, literally trying to el. We were all you know bumping elbows or something like that. So that's right. something that. Or getting two Um, people that are in person to join
3: a Zoom so you can
6: go in, you know?
5: Yeah, exactly. And Echo and all that kind of stuff. So like the seamless nature of being able to jump between groups has been sort of, it's been a nice benefit to everybody learning. I mean, if there could be a benefit, it's everybody learning how to do that. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's going to be something that it's going to stick around.
0: VMware Tanzu Act is a program that helps nonprofits modernize their software development efforts. And here, Ellie Ararig talks about giving those orgs the tools to keep it up once the Tanzu Act experts are gone.
7: We try to kind of lift and shift or adapt our labs method, as you mentioned, and that definitely involves enabling a product team or working very closely with a designer, product manager, and software engineers so that at the end of the project, the Pivotal Labs team can kind of step back and then that product team on the client side can kind of keep going. And what we found when we started with ACT is that a lot of nonprofits don't have software engineers or designers or product managers. Some some do, but a lot of them do not. I think for the reasons that you mentioned in terms of kind of financial constraints and budgets and things like that. So we are learning how to kind of adapt our program. And so where we are finding um, those teams, we can kind of lean on the kind of experience that we have with labs but where we don't have that we've really got to kind of expand the way that we work and so a lot of that involves really taking a view like a long-term view thinking about sustainability and impact like if we look at this problem and we actually you know we deeply research it we look at the systems evolved, and we think actually yes yeah, some some you know software here could really make a difference we have to think about well who's gonna who's actually gonna maintain that after after the end of the engagement And so we've looked at a few different models around that, where we've built something in such a way that we're able to kind of get that first version out the door, and then kind of pause and wait and see kind of how it works in the real world. And then it might be the case that the nonprofit could work with another agency or a contractor kind of further down the line. But the hope is that we've kind of built up their skills in some way. So when they are at that stage, they're kind of using some of the techniques that we do in terms of thinking about outcomes rather than outputs, and so are more likely to hopefully get a piece of technology that actually works for them and, and hopefully is, is driving impact.
0: Following up, Kristen Morris from Nonprofit A21, which focuses on ending human trafficking, discussed how Tanzu Act helped them get started on modernization. <music>
1: From that start of the engagement, we focused on like the three options of do you need to build something, do you need to use something that's existing, or do we need to pause and wait? And so that was really helpful because every step we were looking at those different options and they really helped to identify what exists and options that will work for us where we're at, and then also future options where if we do build or have more team or invest more or any situation, like what those different steps would look like in the future and what we could bring in at those points in time. And so I think for a nonprofit, we do really try to maximize our resources. And we know that every dollar matters and that there's that difference between investing in IT or a survivor of human trafficking, receiving aftercare and that it supports each other and it's all really important, but there is that just weight to the funding and the importance of stewarding our resources well. And so I think working with Pivotal Acts and the fact that they recognized that and they worked with us with that in mind and continuously came back to it was really, really helpful. And it also just helps us and the leadership of our organization like trust the recommendations because it's clear that those things have been thought through every step of the way as well.
0: Hannah Foxwell of VMware explained why starting small with SRE can still deliver some meaningful wins for reliability and culture.
2: I've actually like talking, talking about blame. I've had, I've had somewhat of the opposite scenario as well. So I was talking to one customer about how they might, they might adopt some of these practices in their team and they they had they had quite a legacy fragile system that they were dependent on. A lot of their services were dependent on like the availability and reliability of this legacy system, and they felt almost like almost powerless in this situation that they couldn't improve their own performance and their own availability because it was always it was always degraded by this other system. And I said, well, the first thing you can do is so you could still start measuring it because then you have a business case to invest in this other system. You know, reliability is a team sport in this case. Like you don't, you're not delivering it in isolation. So yeah, I mean a conversation that maybe started with a bit of blame, like, Oh, we can't, we're helpless. We can't do anything about it. It's their fault. Actually. You know, I think it's, it's still a good idea to measure the actual availability of your system because it's, it's not possible sometimes to deliver that reliability that your users need in isolation. And as long as you keep your users' needs in mind, SLIs and SLOs, but they do do blameless postmortems on on their incidents. They do create that blameless space where not every outage is a disaster, and it's an opportunity to learn and improve. So that that in isolation delivers a a an amount of value. And also, you know, when we talk about eliminating toil um, and using automation to do that, to re- to to build a software solution to what would be like a manual human repetitive task, you know, that's again something that has value as a standalone practice. You know, you can reproduce more consistent. You should be able to make improvements and make sure the investment goes to the right places.
0: In an episode on getting started with app modernization, Felicia Schwartz of VMware Tanzu Labs notes how legacy apps can be a bit trickier to secure.
8: We see a lot like secrets within the applications, like things are not protected as well as they should. Remember, a lot of the applications have been around for a long time. So the latest and greatest things that are in place are not necessarily in place. They weren't around when these applications were written. So when we start scanning them, and these applications may not have been changed. So some of the scans, security scans that go through, they, they haven't necessarily gone through all of these. So when we're trying to make changes, we're seeing these vulnerabilities in place. One of the things that's come out of that is we're helping clients get ahead of it. So how do you detect things in advance? that may cause a, a risk from a security standpoint to your applications. So again, newer things are easier to protect because the technologies have improved. Older applications are have a little bit more challenges to them because you, you don't necessarily have the time to rewrite something from scratch, but the security vulnerabilities that exist are are intense. So you know, a workaround is how do we get up front to see some things that are going on beforehand so that we could get ahead of it if the application can't support it? or well, we don't know where the application may have the vulnerabilities.
0: In February, Sean Keery, then VM Tanzu self-proclaimed minister of chaos, talked about the very real financial implications of outages and how chaos engineering can help prevent them.
9: My background is in uh, financial services, and what I found was a great way to encourage people to understand where it's going to add value quickly is by measuring the effect of downtime of your most critical system, right? And if when we looked at ours, it was about $50,000 a second, so about $3 million a minute. So it made sense to invest, right? If it's one engineer at say $100,000 a year, right? All their time spent on stopping this system from going down would be a 30 times return on investment. I would say the second piece is is security. Again, the the average cost of a a system breach, according to the latest Verizon report is $3.8 million. So if you can potentially stop a breach occurring by creating an experiment, which would minimize a configuration error in your credentials, again, it's, it's value. The last piece I would talk about is your team, right? This reliability engineering practice that Google's put together, the, the goal of it is to reduce toil. Your operators, your developers, they don't, it doesn't add value for them to be doing the same thing over and over again. So for me, chaos engineering injects some fun into the job. I go and try and break our systems. For me, as an engineer, as an architect, that's something I look forward to coming to work to do.
0: And here's VMware's Adam Bull discussing one reason why so many organizations are looking at multi-cloud architectures. Hint, it's locking.
10: thing that, that I see quite common or, or becoming more, more and more common is, okay, I, I will consume workloads or, or run my workloads in this particular cloud provider, but what's my, what's my exit strategy? What, what happens if I need to get out of that cloud provider? Yet yeah, I may not have a reason at the moment, but who's to say what will happen in 5, 10, 15 years' time do I have a plan to get out of that cloud provider or am I consuming services or have my development and infrastructure team consume services that mean that I'm ultimately locked into that That and that as well comes back to that whole data locality piece, right? If I've put all of my data in, in one cloud provider, that's a that's a that's a, a point of lock in. If I've consumed some particular PaaS service that's only native to that cloud provider, I'm locked in there. You know, if I'm consuming other services that are only available there, that that's a an, an anchor point for, for all of these workloads. So I think a lot of customers, and, and perhaps I have a bias to this because there's a number of financial services customers that, that I work with, they're looking at how can I consume this information? infrastructure how can I get the best out of this infrastructure create those paths of, of least resistance to make sure that I have that agility and I'm able to get the the, the, the applications provisioned and, and running and performing best for, for my business but also be able to, to get out of that cloud provider or move to another cloud provider if I need to for you know we've already touched on some some commercial reasons but there may be regulatory uh, reasons. You know, there, there's, a, there's a number of reasons that, that mean you know, customers are looking to see, right, where can, I, where can I just consume all this workloads, but still still have that mobility going forward if, if I should need to.
0: Kevin Murley leads data transformation for VMware Tanzu Labs, and here he shares a story about how data gravity in the name of compliance unnecessarily slowed down modernization
11: efforts at one client. Data is going to sit where it lands. And trying to reduce that gravity so that data can be used efficiently can be very difficult, especially when you're looking at the concept of IoT and we're bringing in tons and tons of information. And are we landing it somewhere to then operate on it? Or are we landing it somewhere to then move it somewhere else because we're augmenting that information? So the idea of data gravity has um, a lot of aspects to it. There is data is sitting in one place cuz it's always been there and and it's been there for the last 20 years so we're just going to keep putting more and more data there. There's that aspect of data gravity. There's the anchors to the the data gravity as I mentioned like compliance and audit for example where you've got systems and processes and procedures set up for where that data lives today and it's very difficult to move that. But then there's the aspect of of does all that data that's sitting there really need to be there? We had a customer uh, in the Midwest who had a a big system that was a SOX-compliant database, a big Oracle system that was a sox compliance, and it took them three months to make any changes to the data structure in this giant Oracle database because of all the procedures and policies and and compliance they had to go through for SOX-compliance. When we looked inside that database, there was something like 12 out of the nearly 400 schemas inside that database. Only 12 of them actually were, were any related to finance, any anything even related to SOX compliance. So all this data was sitting in this Oracle database due to data gravity, because that's where it was just easy to put, that did not need to be there and could not have any kind of agile modifications to that data structure because of the compliance of such a tiny percentage of information that was actually in that system.
0: Next is Jeff Anderson, an architecture manager at State Farm, sharing his thoughts on the importance of working with developers and understanding what they need, and also about moving 800 apps to Tanzu application service.
12: One thing that I'll say is absolutely, has been absolutely huge for us, we moved a, a, a fair amount of applications to what's Tanzu Application Service now. And when we did it, we had a goal to move, it was, I think, 800 applications that we got moved in about a, a year and a half. And when you do those kind of migrations, you're kind of like, okay, how much can we ask for development teams to to change and, and to maybe adopt what kind of things do you mandate you want to be careful because all the extra stuff that you add you, you can maybe jeopardize your date goals but one of those things was uh, mandating automated software change deployments so what Basically application teams have, you know, pipelines that they can run where they can deploy a change. Like I said, they can deploy a change in, in minutes instead of instead of what it used to be like weeks or days or weeks. And I think I think that has been one of the biggest things that has increased developers' happiness. Because I think the more process and the, the more time that you kinda add between uh, developer testing and proving that their, their code is, is working to get it to production. I think if you can provide system and support them and in, in getting that done super fast, that's just, that's a huge thing. And, you know, it, it, I would say that that's critical also in learning as we really encourage learn learning by doing so whether it's like a system like Tanzu or, or Kubernetes or public cloud having those those, that automation and the pipeline and the speed to get their applications to to test and then eventually to production to be able to rapidly prove how application um, features and and technologies work or don't work failing fast I I think that has been one of the biggest things to really help increase happiness with our developers. In the spring, Shopify VP
0: of Engineering Farhan Thawar was on. Here, he explained some of the differences between his time at Extreme, then Pivotal, and now Tanzu Labs, and his current role.
13: I'm a huge fan of like the the Labs models, you know. Hence, why you know I did Extreme Labs for many years, and then Pivotal Labs. And what's amazing about those environments is you get exposed to so many different. Clients. It was pretty clear whenever we went to a conference or I was on a panel, and that we knew orders of magnitude more than most people on the panel because they were they were like very very focused on their vertical, right? So they're like, "Hey, here, how do things work in our company?" And I was like, "Well, here's what we've seen across like dozens and dozens of companies," and so that was always useful, useful framing. And I think the the biggest, you know, you talk about mind flip for me in coming to Shopify was this idea of being too efficient. So the cool thing about like extreme labs and pivotal labs was that when we knew the target, there wasn't anybody who could be faster than us because we had pair programming, we had TDD, we had CI, we had this notion of high fidelity conversations. We worked from nine to six. There's all these things that allowed us to be like extremely, extremely efficient. And in a product company, what I've noticed, especially at Shopify is that we're very attuned to making sure we don't land on a local maxima. And so that means sometimes like more wandering and more discovery and more like less, like less hands on keyboard, like in a weird way. And we wanted to make sure that we were like re-vectoring more than would like typically be allowed if we had like a, like a very def- definite end time to launch something. And so it has its pluses and minuses. Sometimes you wander around and realize like there's nothing there. <laughs> And then right, other right. times you wander around and be like and you discover gold and you're like, "Oh my god. If we didn't do these like very strange, long, you know, processing of these ideas, we would never would have landed in this like amazing, you know, amazing place." And so that's been like definitely different for me because I'm used to like really being focused on efficiency and productivity. And I think I read a quote says so something like productivity like not equals creativity or or they're opposing forces. And I don't think they're like either is true. I think you can be quite efficient in engineering and still allow time to wander and explore. I just don't think it's like a pendulum on either side. Like Pivotal was really and Extreme was very very good at the like, hey, we know what we have to build and or and we and of course we, we vector all the time, but it was more narrowly focused on purpose to like get something out by a date, whether it was a startup or a larger enterprise and Shopify is more around is more interested in trying to solve a merchant problem with a much, much wider scope than what a typical labs engagement would look like. So that's definitely been different for me. And especially like I'm when somebody who's trying to push efficiency and you're like actually let's like be less efficient on purpose.
0: In the first of 3 episodes about the Swift method for application modernization, one of its masters, Sean Anderson, of VMware Tanzu Labs gives a high-level overview of why it works so well.
6: Essentially, the reason why Swift was created was because getting complex applications or complex systems onto another platform is challenging, especially when you think in terms of if you're going from a Different technology to the cloud, like mainframe, for example. So, how do we how do we figure out how and what to to get from point A to point B? And often, these complex workloads are things that you can't just containerize and move to the cloud. Right? It's it's uh, it's it's a little bit more complex than wrapping something up and and migrating it. So, so what Swift does is starting with event storming which is something we did not invent alberto brandolini started with event storming as a way of getting kind of an idea about how how systems interact and how business events are happening from uh, you know the business context of your system and what what we found when I was trying to do event storming to understand you know, the complexities of some of these systems is it, it just kind of left us wanting. At the end, it was, okay, we understand a bunch of business events, but that really doesn't help. We can't code yet. We can't figure out how do we actually responsibly get some of the functionality that lives on a legacy system to run in the cloud. And it was a good start. And so what we figured out was, really what we're trying to do with swift is understand how the system wants to behave from a business perspective and that's that's a different approach than just saying let's take a technology first approach and so swift goes through a process of event storming to kind of understand more of what the service candidates are what are the pieces of the system i kind of look at it the same way of You know, if you have a teenager with a messy room or you're trying to clean out your garage, it's a lot easier to understand a little bit about the buckets that you're going to be putting things into and start approaching it that way than just to madly start moving things around. And so understanding how the system wants to behave helps us go to the next step, which is the Boris exercise, which is where we start to model the system, not from... Modeling your existing system, but more modeling from the business perspective, you know, the the software wants to behave a certain way to enable the business. And that's ultimately what we're trying to do. And with Boris, we're able to model that and test it and and see that, oh, okay, it makes sense to organize things a certain way. And then from that, we continue digging down into more detail about what technical patterns, how are we going to actually start coding and so forth. But in the end, going from event storming to Boris to Snappy, which I'm happy to explain a little bit more as well, we can go in a matter of a week or two from not understanding the business at all to having a really good notional architecture, and a direction to to take as you're modernizing your software.
0: In the second of our SWIFT episodes, Felicia Schwartz joins Sean Anderson to talk about modernization in financial services. Here, they discuss commonalities among companies and why it's helpful to work with a partner who has seen it all.
6: From a pattern perspective, I think this is is one of the benefits of of having that kind of top-down approach, thinking about how the systems want to behave, because the more that we've been involved with, you know, various types of financial services companies, you do start to see that, you know, there's, there's patterns that repeat themselves, even though everybody's their own little snowflake. It's, it's things like compliance is, is always there. Like as an example in the, you know, in the U S when you're applying for a loan of, you know, or a credit card or something like that, there's requirements that didn't used to exist that do now that you have to, you have to do an OFAC check to see if the applicants on the terrorist watch list or something like that or if they're you know in a country that the US has banned business with you know something like that but but the solution to those becomes a similar pattern so when we start to see a you know something that oh hey both insurance and you know consumer lending has the concept of an application and they have a concept of either decisioning do i have enough information to say yep this person's approved for a loan or underwriting yes they qualify for our product like all of those kind of patterns you start to see flavors repeating themselves, which is which is kind of nice because the means the solutions you're you're at least partway there. That hey, at this other customer, this worked well um, for that same core capability, and it it helps validate that. Uh, yep, that was that was a good direction to start going. Or you start to see that yeah, we went through this rapid feedback loop, and you realize well, maybe we didn't implement implement that the best way, so. We should you know make a, a, a change at the next opportunity but but those those same patterns repeat themselves both from a business capability and need standpoint and the design of the system that evolves to model or to in you know make that that part of the system actually work
8: and across, like within the, in each of these industries, these sub industries in financial services, you're going to have basic concepts all to be the same that like there's an account, right? Getting alignment on what an account means, just like we started with what a financial services mean, but every, every, everybody's going to have an account. Everybody's going to have a prospect of of potential new accounts. They're going to have products. So there's a lot of commonality. It's how you treat it. Everybody's done their own thing. And it's, so there are commonalities that make sense. So as you we you know we talk to more and more customers, let's we, we have a better understanding of well what should an account refer to, what is the ubiquitous language we could put around that, and and that will translate from one customer within a specific industry to the next.
0: And finally, we have Sean Anderson back for the third episode on Swift, this time focused on retail. Here he and Brandon Blinko of Tanzu Labs dig into some techniques for merging systems after one retailer acquires another.
6: That is one of the biggest challenges, especially in retail, where you'll have a sporting goods company acquires a party store or something like that, which seems totally unrelated. But in the end, it's like, well, you have, you have some core capabilities that are the same, right? And what we do with Swift is as we go through that, we're not really looking at the, the classification of retail store. It's just about what kind of products. Everything Everybody's got a product. So as we talk through with Swift, we say, yeah, there's a core capability everybody shares called product that manages the products. And today, those products are managed in two places in, in the store that's being acquired and different products in the, the parent company, but it's still products. And so as we talk through that with Swift, similar to the way we look at a legacy system to strangle off capabilities, it actually works the same way through acquisition where we see that there's a central core functionality managing products or customers or marketing. And then we can map that to today, The product is managed in these five different store systems, but we're giving them that landing pad to start with. In the future, if you want to get product information, you go to one place, our our new product capability that under the covers may have the smarts to go to those five stores to get what the information they need. But the other thing that does is it gives you the ability to start saying, now we have a landing pad where we can start pulling that out. Maybe... The party store that got acquired uses an e-commerce platform. We can start moving into our new product system and strangle that off to where we have minimal impact as we're going. Um, and and all of the systems that supported back office for that store that was acquired is it's the same kind of story. It's rare that you have something so unusual. In a company that's being acquired, that the concept doesn't exist in some other place, and we're just simply finding those concepts and team structure maps around that too, right? If if you have developers at two different stores that each work with products, well, now you have a home to combine the people along with the business functionality and the
12: software. And uh, Boris is the the exercise we would be be looking at to to do just that, which Sean's mentioning. And what what's what's interesting is. With that, imagine two two companies, two different product domains, two teams that manage that. The consolidation of that is happening through the Swift through, Swift through Boris, and once again, it goes back to relationships. Now you can have a conversation with these two teams. They have domain knowledge in both both systems, and we can have a have a conversation on how do we adapt one system to the other to actually have a common and consolidated product view.
0: And with that. Our highlights episode is done. If you made it this far, thank you. You are a trooper. If you want to learn more about VMware Tanzu, Tanzu Labs, and everything that's talked about in this episode, a good place to start
11: is tanzu.vmware.com. Until next time.